Welcome to the Research Reimagine podcast, brought to you by Nottingham Trent University. I'm your host, Helen Darby Dalman, and I'll be inviting some of NTU's brightest minds to explore how their research is helping us to deepen our understanding of the world. From online addictions to transgender rights and sleep disorders, listen as we discuss some of society's most pressing challenges and uncover some of the ways our research is making a difference. From anti-slavery to women's rights, the UK has a long and proud history of protest. And freedom of expression has played a major role in shaping the society we live in today. But recently, groups like the Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil have been using disruption tactics to communicate their views, causing chaos on the roads and at several high-profile sporting events. Earlier this year, changes to the 1986 Public Order Act were passed here in Britain, imposing conditions on protests considered to be causing serious disruption to life of the community. Amongst other things, the bill gives the police new powers to take stronger action against protesters, particularly those who attach themselves to other people, objects or buildings. This act is often referred to as locking on, and it's a tactic that has been used by thousands of protesters throughout history. So how do the changes to the Public Order Act impact our right to protest? And why are activist groups like Amnesty International campaigning against it? So to talk more about this fascinating issue, we're joined today by Professor Tom Lewis from Nottingham Law School here at NTU. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Um, Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a professor here at um, NTU, at the law school, and I teach public law and human rights. And I write and research about issues to do with freedom of expression and freedom of religion. And and I'm interested in especially uh, the right of public protest. And, and the importance of that to our democracy. First of all, then, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the changes to the Public Order Act. It's interesting, this, because there's a, a Public Order Act in 2023, which is the one we're going to be talking about today, but this comes hot on the heels of another piece of legislation, which is, is helpfully called, it's a ra- bit of a mouthful, it's called the Police, Crime, Courts and Sentencing Act of last year. And this piece of legislation made various changes to the powers that the police have to control assemblies and processions. And itself, it was quite controversial. And several of the measures that the government wanted to push through in the 2022 legislation didn't get through. They were kicked out by the House of Lords. So in 2023, in the Public Order Bill, the government reintroduced them, and it's now become law. So what we're talking about today is stuff that got kicked out for the previous piece of legislation last year, and it's come back like Marley's ghost to haunt us. And so tell me a little bit more about what's actually in the Public Order Act. Yeah, so it's actually, compared to the the 2022 Act, it's a a kind of fairly short piece of legislation, but uh, perhaps the most striking thing is this new criminal offence known as, as locking on, which is designed, the government say, and I'm sure this is correct to try and stop people preventing disruption to uh, road networks and infrastructure projects and that sort of thing where they attach themselves to land or buildings or each other in order to stop work or to stop transport or to stop people getting about. Locking on then, I mean can you give us some examples of where we've seen this and what it actually involves? Yeah so it's primarily been used um, in recent years by big sort of environmental protest organisations like Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, Insulate Britain. Um, And it's 
used where people attach themselves to each other or sometimes glue themselves to surfaces like road surfaces and in, in, in doing that they prevent especially um, you know transport um, transport networks effectively working and they prevent um, people you know people getting from from a, from a to B really and um, and they cause a great amount of disruption you know the well well, well publicized protests on roads like the m25 and and that kind of thing, yeah. I mean, and obviously the, the point of it, of protesting, is to get awareness, to get noticed. So causing disruption is all part and parcel of it. Public protest in a democracy is really, really important. It's a key, it's a core democratic freedom, really. And it's one of those things which, look, not all, not all of us own um, a newspaper and are able to put our views out like Rupert Murdoch or whoever. And I suppose today we have social media and the internet and that kind of thing to communicate with people. But nevertheless, going on into public space with other like-minded people to protest and make known issues about which you think, which you feel deeply are important, um, is a core democratic right to, so that you can make your views known to those with power, those with power to change things, those with power to be able to affect change. And it's therefore really important in a, in a democracy. But the flip side of that is that that kind of protest inevitably causes disruption. At, at the extreme end, it's things that's what we see in France at the moment with riots and that kind of thing. But peaceful public public protest is that has got a long tradition in in, in in you know British law as part of our system of democratic governance, going way way back to the even to the you know the early protests like the Levellers and in the 17th century and. And, and through the 19th century with the suffragettes and the 20th century with the suffragettes and the Chartist movement. So it's, it's always been a, an important part of our sort of our polity, our, our way of doing things so that we, you and I, can go on the street and make known to those in authority things about which we feel uh, which, which are important. Going back to like the, this new law, this locking on, and actually you don't even necessarily have to have locked on it's about having the intent to do it having the equipment talk, talk to us a little bit about that and you know I know there was the example at the King's Coronation where people were arrested just for having the equipment can you talk me through that a little bit? Um, the first bit of the Public Order Act introduces this new crime locking on and, and locking on is where you attach yourself to another person or to land or to an object in a situation where it's causing serious disruption to two or more people or to an organisation. And you have to have an intention or be reckless as to whether that, that um, disruption will be caused. Um, and that itself is a new crime. It's a new criminal offence, which is, is punishable by a prison term of up to 51 weeks or an unlimited fine. So that itself is a new thing in the law. And... The second part or the second section of the Public Order Act introduces a crime of going equipped to lock on, whereby if you are carrying the equipment which may be used and with the intention of committing the primary crime, locking on, um, that itself is a criminal offence. And that, it appears, is what the protesters at King Charles's coronation were, were arrested for. Um, having equipment which could potentially have been used to lock on. And I think in this instance, the equipment in question were suitcase straps, which 
they say were being used to hold together placards for a peaceful protest. The list of equipment, can you give us a bit of an insight into that? Because, I mean, it sounds like if you're talking about suitcase straps, I mean, obviously someone could have a suitcase. So how does the equipment have to look for someone to decide that this is actually an act of locking on? The, the statute doesn't list uh, um, equipment as such. It just it's, it's equipment which could, could be used for locking on. But, um, you know, the, the Crown Prosecution Service, for example, has issued a list of prosecutors which are the sort of things which might be included. They include, and they could include, such things as um, the bike locks, those D-locks you get, uh, chains, um, padlocks, glue, because, of course, sometimes the phrase is locking on, but if you attach yourself to an object, very often protesters use superglue or some very strong adhesive. Um other things which are mentioned, bamboo scaffolding, uh, tubes and pipes. So sometimes protesters will link arms inside a pipe so that, there are, that their hands can't be prized apart. Um, and the CPS list also, also sort of mentions rigging and um, to, to get into trees. So because protests sometimes take, take place in, 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 in trees. And so that might include things like climbing equipment and ropes and, and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a really broad list, as, as indeed the, the protesters at King Charles's uh, coronation uh, found out. So in terms of the consequences, I mean, you've touched on it already. Um, can you tell us again a little bit about what might happen? I mean, what, what happens to people? I mean, they can end up in prison. Um, and that kind of, where's the discretionary... Um, opinion come in from the police because obviously the police now have a lot of power in terms of deciding where they deem it to be locking on threat or not. Absolutely yeah I mean in, in some ways you could say this puts a lot of pressure on the police because they've been given these extra powers but of course that confers on them discretion so the police came in for a lot of criticism after the coronation arrests for example and actually I think expressed some regret after that for, for the action that they'd taken. Um, so, I mean, potentially, I mean, committing, committing these offences can lead to a, a prison sentence or a fine. And I think the going equipped can lead to a fine. So they're quite serious, serious consequences. Um, one thing you might say is, though, that there are certain statutory human rights protections built into our law. And a really egregious sort of extreme prosecution under these circumstances might be thrown out by the courts on human rights grounds. However, probably the reality is many of these offences will just lead to a sort of chilling effect that people will end up kind of being deterred from going to protest in the first place. Uh, and that's possibly the risk that's been highlighted most is the sort of the chilling effect of these kind of these kind of uh, laws. And by chilling, I mean, people just, shall I go protest? Shall I not? No, I'll just, I'll just not. And that is probably, a, probably on balance, a bad thing for having a vibrant democracy. What happened prior to this? Can you give us a little bit of insight into, you know, prior to this law being brought in in May? Taking it right back, um, it's very interesting that public order legislation is always in response to... Um, some event which takes place which causes the public concern. So the first Public Order Act was in 1936 and that act was passed at the time of major ideological global conflict between fascists and communists and 
you know, the, the Battle of Cable Street and pitched battles between ideological sort of uh, forces. And so that act was passed in response to those kind of events. Um, and then you fast forward to the 1980s and you've got major disruption, things like the miners' strike, you've got riots in Bristol and Brixton and Liverpool, and you get the 1986 Public Order Act, which is still, up until now, the major piece of legislation which controls uh, protest and, and restricts protest in, in this sphere. And then in the 1990s, there was a great deal of public anxiety about New Age travellers, people going on to Stonehenge at solstice time, and people going to raves. So a Public Order Act, it was called the Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, was passed in order to clamp down on the public order issues in relation to people going to raves and, and, and trying to get access to solstice, Stonehenge. And this piece of legislation is in response to public disquiet about the disruption caused by these major eco-protests. So it's interesting, the big broad historical spectrum, you get a kind of you know, series of protests or events or major disturbances, and the government introduces legislation which Parliament passes, which seeks to address those. Um, I think this legislation, very many of the things which this legislation is, and it does other things as well. I mean, it's not just locking on, it, it, it prevents things like um, tunneling to cause disruption to infrastructure projects and it, um, it, disrupting major road, major transport works, for example. But I think a lot of these things were already criminal offences. So locking on, for example, um, if you lock on to prevent, you know, a transport network um, on the road, there's already a crime of willful obstruction of the highway. This is already criminal. So, which is a recognised offence with a good body of case law. And one wonders how much extra locking on will add to the actual substantive armoury that the police and prosecutors have. In terms of then the reason for creating it is obviously to try and alleviate this disruption because mm. it's inconvenient to us. But equally, a lot of the people that are protesting are protesting about issues that actually mean a lot to many of us. Tell us a little bit about the variation in, in opinion in terms of what we're actually protesting about and then how people respond to it. Obviously, there's a major um, crisis facing the planet, um, the eco-crisis. And interesting, I've been sort of researching a little bit recently, there are other um, instances of this involving a spate of, of, of attachments of people to, not to road or infrastructure, but to great artworks. So, so in Italy recently, a, a, an eco-protest group were convicted of gluing themselves to sculptures in the Vatican museums. So this sort of way of protest has kind of spread on, on behalf of, of eco-protesters, has, has kind of spread far and wide, really. Um, and of course, in many ways, the idea of locking on is, it, it seems like it's new and different and we're reacting to something which is new and different. But I just was having a little Google around yesterday for this in, in my, my in-depth preparation for this, for this podcast. And of course, the suffragettes were locking themselves to railings back in the early 20th century. And there are images you can find um, of suffragettes locking themselves on and being dragged off and what by the police. So in some ways, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. These things have been going on for a very long, long time. And um, in terms of kind of punishments for protesters prior to 
this new act being passed in May, what what would we see? Well, normally these things are um, summary offences, so they're not serious crimes. So normally we're talking about a fine. Um, and in the past, people would be um, often arrested in order to prevent something under the common law called a breach of the peace. And people would be bound over to keep the peace, not, not to sort of cause this kind of disruption again, where it's likely to cause violence. Um, one of the things I haven't talked about yet is the fact, or, or only talked about a little bit, is the fact that all this law has to be interpreted in line with our obligations under the Human Rights Act or under the Human Rights Act. So we have a, a right to freedom of expression under the Human Rights Act, drawn from the European Convention on Human Rights, and a right of peaceful assembly. And if prosecutions are pursued under these, these new powers, any conviction or arrest must be proportionate to the end which is sought to be achieved, which in this case is preventing serious disruption. So I think that's where, when, when, when these cases, if they come up against the courts, the courts will be faced with the balance of having to say, okay, we need to balance this really important right in democracy of protest, freedom of expression, and the right of peace, peaceful assembly, because there's no hint of violence in these things. It's all peaceful. And the rhetoric is all about, you know, it's, it's about sort of preventing disruption to hardworking people. That's, that's the way it's pitched. But it's not, it's not violent protest. And the courts will have to balance that important right against the inconvenience caused. And in human rights terms, the principle of proportionality is used, which can be summed up essentially by this idea that, well, the metaphor is, if you want to crack a nut, you shouldn't use a sledgehammer, you should use a nutcracker. So you should only use just enough state authority, state power to achieve the thing you're trying to achieve. And when, for example, the locking on offence comes before the courts, the senior courts, I think there'll be a lot of debate about whether its vague drafting and its great breadth will end up being a disproportionate interference with a very important democratic right. It might be, to use the metaphor, it might end up being found to be a sledgehammer to crack a nut rather than a finely tuned nutcracker. So the, the UN Human Rights Chief has called the bill deeply troubling. Why is that? I think that's because of its great breadth and it's th this, this point about potential disproportionality. So I suppose to take a little step back, in, in human rights parlance, in human rights law, you've got a, a set of rights which are considered to be essential for human beings to go about their lives in dignity and make choices and contribute to society that enable us to live our lives, happy lives. And for most of those rights, it's possible for the state to interfere. So the right to freedom of expression or the right to free speech, yes, the state can interfere when someone goes too far. Similarly with the right of assembly, if it becomes violent or, or really, really inconveniences people. And the kind of lodestone about all that is this principle of proportionality, this idea that you shouldn't go further than is necessary to achieve the thing you're trying to achieve. 
And arguably, I think the current law as recently enacted, we, we shall see what the courts say, um, is, is a disproportionate interference with these rights. Now, it's interesting because, of course, courts, you know, these these judges sitting in their, their robes, long after the fact, they're not on the on the spot, they're not on the streets like the police are, having to make difficult choices about how do we balance these competing rights when people are getting angry? What do we do? Um, and they're very aware, the courts often, of not being too intrusive and second-guessing what the police do in these kind of situations. And there's a principle the courts have developed known in, in domestic courts as deference. Look, we, we accept these are difficult choices you've got to make to the police, and we'll accept that. But in, in this case, one wonders whether the courts will say, look, this is just perhaps perhaps too far. This is maybe a step too far. We, we shall see. It'll be interesting. We, we lawyers, we're waiting for the big case to see what the courts say, you know. <laughs> I guess we're yet to really see. It only came out in May. Mm, absolutely. And, and yeah. so far, has there been any any cases? Not recorded cases. So, and as far as I know, the, the arrests at the coronation weren't prosecuted. So I, I that... What will happen is these cases will be dealt with, at first instance, by magistrates, which aren't recorded. So we don't really find out much much about those. And, and it, oh, it will require an appeal to a higher court for a sort of legal deliberation to probably, properly get into uh, what this means. I suppose the bigger backdrop to all this is that if it does get appealed, if one of these cases gets appealed, you know, a protesting organisation has the funds to push it forward or the government lose the case at first instance and they decide to sort of appeal it forward, it'll go through the stages of the British courts. And then, ultimately, if the supposed victim of that violation of their rights wants to push it further, they can take their case to the European Court of Human Rights based in Strasbourg which, of course, opens up a whole other world of pain. So here's the thing about human rights, right? Here's the thing. Um, human rights, we all get them because we're human. We don't get them because we're British or European. We get them by dint of our humanity. And most of us in a democracy kind of do all right most of the time because democracies work on the basis that the majority gets, gets into power and that majority ends up um, having the influence on the laws that get passed. So if you're in the majority, generally speaking, the laws run in your favour. The sort of people that tend not to do so well in democracies are those who majority aren't that keen on. If you're in a, an unpopular minority, an ethnic, religious, racial minority, if you're an immigrant, if you're an income, if you're a refugee, if you're a prisoner, if you've got a sexuality at odds with the mainstream, those kind of people don't do... That's why we need human rights. That's why we need powerful law to stand up for people who are vulnerable. By definition, almost, because human rights are standing up for unpopular people, often the majority say, why do we need these human rights? This is terrible. That's, that We're not standing up for hardworking people. And it becomes... But that's the very reason why we need to protect these human rights. Um, but, of course, politically, it can be very you know, expeditious and helpful to claim 
that um, human rights aren't working for British people. And I think that's, for me, that's dangerous territory. So, so going back to, to the protest, so protest is fundamental to, to democracy and has a really long history, as you, you've talked us through earlier in the UK. What does the bill mean for our democratic rights to protest? Yeah, I, I see it as a next little nibble away. It's been an incremental sort of nibbling away over a period of the last few years, with the first big bite of that nibbling being the 2022 uh Police, Crime, Courts and Sentencing Act, and then this one hot on its heels. So I think it's two more little uh, bites out of that um, that sort of freedom. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, really, because in some ways you could say the powers that the police have got, these new powers, they kind of already had, especially in relation to obstruction of the highway and that kind of thing. And there are many other powers. I mean, a common law power in relation to, for example, breach of the peace. So in some ways, perhaps it doesn't do much. But the very fact of its kind of publicity, you know, those high profile coronation arrests, for example, it might make people who want to protest about important things, about they think things which they think are important, think twice and not do it. And I think so it's not so much the actual substantive law. It's more it, this, as I mentioned before, this chilling idea, this sort of damping down of people's. And of course, that's the that's the purpose, I suppose, it, in, in some ways, job done for the government. It deter people from protesting. Good thing. But um, for me, it's not a good thing. I think a, a good, vibrant democracy depends on, depends upon uh, protest. And, you know, yeah, look, I've been at the other end of these things. I, it, it's get angry when you get, you get delayed and you want to get your kids to school and, and that kind of thing. And it's, it's, it's really bad, for sure. And perhaps something needed to be done. Um, but the powers arguably exist. And in a democracy... You need to show some tolerance, I think, to afford rights to those who want to make their voices known. I mean, my last question was, you sort of answered it already, but, you know, do you actually think that this bill will help prevent disruption? I think it might, because people might think twice. And I think that's a bad thing in some ways. That might be a controversial thing to say for people trying to get their kids to work on the M25 on a, you know, eight o'clock on a, on a Monday morning, for sure. But... Um, I, I, I think it might deter some people. It might have this chilling effect, yeah. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really fascinating to hear more about this topic. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for the opportunity. If you'd like to find out more about Tom's work, please have a look in the episode description. You've been listening to the Research Reimagine podcast by Nottingham Trent University. For all of the latest news from the research community at NTU, follow us on Twitter at NTU underscore research or sign up to our research newsletter by visiting ntu.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for listening.